The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, a new year, a new you, and some new conversations today on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, hello, hello. It's a brand new year and we are off and running. I'm sure many of you are looking to make a change, a new you, or at least a slightly new you. We all have improvements to make, don't we? Resolutions. Maybe yours is to read a bit more, and maybe that's why you're here. Our traffic always spikes in January, and I think of it as as the same as the gym being more crowded. We let things lapse a bit around the holidays, whether that's calorie counting or exercise or mental stimulus. And then it's January. We head with eagerness to the fitness center. We swap out sweets for salads, and we put a little mental nutrition into our ears. Well, you've come to the right place. We will have many, many great episodes for you this year on the history of literature. We're going to play some hits. William Wordsworth, The Venerable Bede, Margaret Cavendish, Henry David Thoreau. And that's just January and just a part of January. I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, your host. And I'm enjoying my new year, spending some time with the family. And so we've got something a little on the lighter side today. A couple of podcasts to recommend. We'll be talking to the hosts of those podcasts, and both of these are very suitable for the new year. One of them is all about books, like this podcast, and the other is all about travel. If there's anything that goes on my list of resolutions, it's to do more of both. Gotta read more, and gotta get out there and see more of the world. And when I'm at home or on that treadmill, or running those errands, I can at least do the next best thing, which is to get ready to stimulate my mind with some good conversations. So let's start with the podcast Missing Pages. We've talked with the host before, Beth Ann Patrick, aka The Book Maven, who presides over that show, Missing Pages. You know, you, you people know this about me, I think that I've, I've talked about this. I have kind of a 50-year policy here at the History of Literature. We will dip into contemporary literature now and then, but for the most part, I like to study the past. A book 50 years or, or older, because I like to see great works and how they've affected people over time. That's sort of the mission here at the History of Literature. Well, think of missing pages as filling in a gap. They do more current events, so to speak, They'll have episodes on book bans, for example, and the, the state of book publishing today and writing communities. What's going on there? You might be familiar with some of these issues from reading news sites and magazines, but this is your chance to go deeper along with the folks at Missing Pages. Now, before we begin, Beth Ann and I talk about something during our talk that I wanted to preview for you in case it's new to you or in case your memory is foggy. This is the Bad Art Friend scandal. This is from a 2021 New York Times Magazine story called Who is the Bad Art Friend? Basically what happened is that two people who worked for the same place, a writing center called Grub Street, became entangled in a feud which led to lawsuits in federal court and which eventually divided the literary online world. 
A lot of discussions about this, a lot of disputes. Their feud opened up conversations and raised questions about the literary ownership of personal stories, about what we owe to one another when two friends are writers, and so on. Is that enough detail? Hmm. Let me flesh it out a bit. So Dawn Dorland, who was a student at Grub Street at first and later became an instructor of some kind there, donated a kidney through what's called a chain donation system, where this is, you've probably heard of this, where someone wants to give a kidney to a loved one, but they're not a match. So they say, well, I'll give my kidney to someone who is a match, provided that someone gives a kidney to my loved one, and so on. So you you agree to donate kidneys, and you could trigger a chain. Well, Dawn gave hers to a stranger, so that the wife of the the kidney recipient... That wife wanted to donate her own kidney to her husband, but she couldn't. So then the wife gave her kidney to someone else and so on. It's a way of matching volunteer donors with people who can actually use the kidney. So because of the matching system, can preclude that otherwise. So then Don Dorland, after donating a kidney, a pretty selfless act, put up a Facebook page about it and wrote a letter to the donor about empathy and why she felt it, and so on. She also posted that to the Facebook page, and she talked about herself and how she had grown up among some trauma, some abuse, and how she didn't have strong family connections, and so on, and that this is what created the empathy in her that enabled her to do it, and and that kind of thing. Well, Sonia Larson, who also worked at Grub Street, was apparently struck by this. She started reading these posts without commenting on them, which Dawn noticed. And Sonia also seems to have been inspired by Dawn's sharing of all this. And by inspired, I don't mean uh, motivated in a positive way. I mean inspired in a creative way. Sonia comes from a mixed-race background with a white father and a Chinese-American mother. And this fit into a theme that she wanted to explore, I think, about white savior complexes and the need not just to help someone, but to advertise it and to feel better about oneself. Uh, A rather narcissistic form of giving, let's say. There's no evidence that Sonia was trying to get revenge on Dawn or take her down or anything like that, but the character in the story started out with the name Dawn. It was changed later. It started out as Dawn, and Sonia did use Dawn's letter to her kidney recipient that Dawn had posted. She used that almost word for word in the story. Dawn eventually read the story and felt betrayed, and also, I think, because she was a writer herself, as if she'd had something essential stolen from her, something that was hers, her story. Now it was being used in someone else's fiction. Well... That's something writers always do, right? Well, does it matter that the writers are fellow writers? Does it matter if it's defamation? So lawsuits were filed and so on. That's the story as it made its way into the Times article a couple of years ago. This all happened, I think, five or six years ago, but Times article was a couple of years ago. Missing Pages, the podcast, as Beth Ann will explain in our conversation, takes up that story and brings it up to the present with some new information, some new context about what we're to make of all of this. 
So we will have that. And we talk about a lot of other things as well. But that's just one thing that comes up that I wanted to make sure you were able to follow. And after that, we're going to hear from our travel podcast host. We'll set that up after we talk to Beth and Patrick, which we'll do right now. Okay, joining me once again is Beth Ann Patrick, also known on the internet as The Book Maven, who is the host of the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast, Missing Pages, which has just launched its second season. Beth Ann Patrick, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. I am really delighted to be here and delighted to be able to talk about uh, season two of uh, Missing Pages. Right. Who knew? Yeah, (laughs) who knew? But before we get there, let's remind listeners of what the first season of Missing Pages covered. In, In retrospect, what were some of the highlights for you? Well, first of all, the first season definitely covered individuals mostly Mm. and Mm -hmm. a lot of those individuals had some kind of controversy around them some of them actually were scandalous or scam artists or liars some of them were actually caught up in controversies that hadn't been fully explored and hadn't been Mm. fully reported on and uh, so it was really fun to do that, not fun necessarily to take anyone down, but the people that we did take down a peg or two definitely, in my opinion, deserved it. And I think we also were very balanced in our reporting. Mm. In fact, I know we were very balanced because we had fact checking done and legal review done, just as we have in this season. You know, we are trying quite hard to make sure that even though I'm not a hard-hitting investigative journalist by any means or by training, but uh, we certainly want to be sure that we are not giving any incorrect information, that we are not coming to conclusions that we can't support. Well, that's interesting because a lot of, I think it's an important reminder for listeners that you're doing investigative reporting as well as just describing topics, because a lot of these topics are probably things that people have have heard about, or maybe they read a, a, a magazine piece or something about them and maybe followed it a while ago. But what's interesting to me is to have the missing pages take on it where, you know, the dust has settled a little bit, but we can we can get a good perspective on what's happened and what mm-hmm. it all meant and maybe learn a few things that were not available when these things were in the headlines. Exactly, Jack, exactly. And, you know, one of my favorite examples of that for people who haven't heard season one yet is our episode on Greg Mortensen, who wrote Three Cups of Tea. That was a huge bestseller. And then he was discredited very widely so by the author and uh, adventurer John Krakauer. And what we pulled up is that there was someone who was also on the ground there in Pakistan and was climbing with both of them, with with Mortensen and Krakauer, I believe, at different times in different places, who actually said, oh, you know what? Krakauer didn't get everything right. Now, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the person we interviewed 
is necessarily 100% correct. But we felt it was really important that a lot of readers who were really disappointed because they thought of Mortensen as a true philanthropist and uh, someone who did a lot of great activist uh, work for women and girls education in Pakistan, that it was really important to hear the other side mm, mm-hmm. because that's what helps you make your own decision about something instead of just receiving the one-sided idea from Krakauer, who, again, isn't necessarily wrong, but he could be. And that's really, that's that's crucial, I think, for people to understand. So that is our mission. I think that's really important because John Krakauer, uh, as much as I've enjoyed his books, I put him in the category with a Michael Lewis or a Malcolm Gladwell or, you know, people who have such a big platform and have write books that sell so many copies. And then there's such a, a cottage industry that accompany the publication of those books where you'll get an excerpt in New York magazine or a big, you know, or an influential publication, Vanity Mm -hmm. Fair or something like that. And it sometimes can feel like they sort of steamroll the story that their narrative becomes the narrative Mm -hmm. and it doesn't, you know, there have been a lot of instances where people say, well, that's not really fair to the people, you know, that tells a good story that way, but there's a little more to it. It's a little more complex than that. And it's good to hear from some of these other voices because we're looking to authors like this to shed real insight into important issues and topics and also just to to kind of be fair to the lives of the people who are in those stories that they they maybe uh, didn't, you know, they they maybe didn't intend to end up being defined by a best-selling author that everyone is reading on airplanes and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that is season one. I think it's really fun and really interesting. But the exciting part for me is that season two is rather different, but it's also really fun and exciting. And I have to say, I'm kind of amazed by that, which I know is odd for me to say as a host who's also, you know, produced and worked on the interviews in the show. But you never know until something is finished. And I'm very, very proud of season two. I think our entire team is. Okay, so the differences in season two, I know one of them is that they, the format is slightly different. Instead of the individual episodes, there are, I guess, mini-series, you might yes. call them. So maybe we should start with uh, the first one I have on the list here. Who holds the power in book publishing? Right. Uh, thank you for um, talking about that and asking about that, because it is one of the things that we think is changing. And if it isn't changing completely, then it's something that people need to hear about and examine so they know, oh, gosh, I don't think that's really going to have any kind of effect on publishing. Or, wow, I never considered that before. So Mm. Who Holds the Power in Publishing has four episodes. And we start with an episode about Colleen Hoover. Mm, If mm -hmm. anyone listening hasn't heard of Colleen Hoover, (laughs) it is because you are not looking at book 
stores and bookshelves right. or the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list because basically she has got, you know, so many books out that she has special um, display cases at bookstores that are just Colleen Hoover's nine books that are out right now, right? Wow. Usually a display might be of one single bestseller, you know, the latest from Ann Patchett, let's say. Um, and believe me, I'm not comparing Ann Patchett's writing to Colleen Hoover's writing. Um, Colleen Hoover writes quickly. Um, her writing is not always the most fantastic prose, either in terms of content or syntax or style. Okay. Mm. Um, Colleen Hoover's books are meant to appeal to the emotions, especially of young women um, who are looking at things relevant to women's lives. And she's, you know, open to vein, more than hit a nerve, she's mm. open to vein. Yeah. And so uh, Colleen Hoover might seem like someone who is changing a paradigm for authors, right? Mm. Because I, she started out self-published and exactly. she's, she's now sold tens of millions of copies and kind of almost, I don't want to say in defiance of, but certainly to the surprise of the publishers who had originally turned her down. It, absolutely to the surprise of those publishers who are now publishing her. You know, she now publishes uh, with, I know with Simon & Schuster, I'm trying, I don't want to say anything incorrect about other imprints that she works with. One of the interesting things about Colleen Hoover is that she writes in lots of different um, fictional genres. She writes spy fiction, romance fiction, women's fiction, you know, historical fiction, you know, name a genre, mm. you know, paranormal. She really does it all, which is, I think, pretty remarkable. Yeah. And as you said, since she started out self-publishing and had such success, the industry, which is an industry that wants to make money, has picked up on it. In our episode, we really try to look at that more than we try to look at the actual content and messages. We have a little bit about that mm -hmm. because you know, for instance, there was, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to tell everyone what's in the episodes. I shouldn't do that. Uh, so anyway, anyway, look, look within for a little bit of a perspective on whether or not Colleen Hoover's actual stories and content are, you know, serving her audience. But right, right. it's a really interesting thing to look at, especially because of book talk. It's book talk has really brought Colleen Hoover a huge audience. So it, it is something something quite different. Well, in in talking about who holds the power, I mean you can see where the the publishing houses, which for decades have been serving a role as gatekeepers would uh, now feel the shift of, well, uh, you know, what if people can go around us and, and publish on their own? But also, what if our judgment, instead of us, you know, choosing what we think is going to be popular with people, what if we're just letting these authors go out and then we they show us who's popular? Colleen Hoover, we'll just wait for the next Colleen Hoover to to catch on and then we'll just try to ride that comet uh, as it soars through the sky or or <laughs> another thing that another thing they can do is, and I know they do do is to look at 
the social media presence of people and to say, well, you know, we're trying to sell this memoir or this novel, and here's someone with a million followers or even more in a case of a celebrity. And here, this person has all of this access to, you know, people who are, are following him or her, and we can just piggyback off of that. It doesn't really matter if we choose the quality. We just need to find the right influencers in order to uh, sell the books that we want to sell. Well, this goes perfectly, in, and I, you know, I can talk definitely about the episodes that are already out in more depth than I can about the ones that are to come. But our second episode in the mini series about who holds the power in publishing is about fan fiction. Mm. And this is really interesting, Jack, because fan fiction isn't just about people who are self-publishing writing. It's about people who are self-publishing writing about someone else's writing, about yeah. someone else's idea, okay? So in this one, we look specifically at the conflict between two people, Zoe Ellis and Addison Kane, who wrote fan fiction based on a genre known as wolf kink, okay? And wolf kink comes out of not a book, even though there are books now, but it came out of the TV show Supernatural. Hmm. And in Supernatural, you've got a universe in which wolves, um, you know, have sexual relationships and people who are part wolf, I, you know, hmm. it gets really complicated. <laughs> but the, the problem was who holds the copyright right. on that kind of thing? If someone decides to publish in print their fan fiction, can they hold the copyright if someone else has already written fan fiction online that has that idea in hmm. it? It's really interesting because there's so much of this out there, so right. much of it. And so any ruling on it, anything that changes the way people can write fan fiction, can approach it, can publish it, can use it for their own, you know, whatever it happens to be, is going to make a difference for millions million not and maybe not millions of writers it might be millions it's definitely you know tens of thousands but there are millions of pieces of fan fiction out there about not just supernatural but also about star trek about twilight about the hunger games you name it there is fan fiction about it Right. Okay. So let's move on to the next topic in the miniseries, and that is banned books. Ah, banned books. Um, and what impact does the escalation of book banning have is a really important story for us because, of course, we all love books and do not want to see them censored. So in this story, we really talk about the history of book banning in America, which is a little more complicated than, you know, people might know. Really glad that we got to talk to a law school professor, Len Niehoff, and the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, for that. But we move on to talk about what's happening right now. Mm. And I'm really thrilled 
that we spoke to best-selling amazing author Jody Picot, who has experienced her own books being banned, mm. and then to a mom named Andrea who explains, you know, what she wants to protect her children from and why she wants more control over the stories that her children are exposed to. We also have a full Jody Picot interview and uh, we have another episode in that story that we're working on right now. So I don't want to tell, say too much about it, but it will be really, really uh, important for our audience, that one. Mm. I think that is, I, I'm glad that you're looking at all the different sides of the story because it does seem like in in some ways, you know, you could read a headline and say, oh, they're banning books. Well, I know where I stand on that. I'm against it. You know, that's right. Hitler's Nazi Germany stuff and, and I'm not going to burn books and I'm, I'm in favor of freedom and, and et cetera. But in some sense, we are all book banners in the, you know, if... If somebody at my child's kindergarten uh, school was handing out Fifty Shades of Grey and saying, this is what is on the curriculum, I'd probably be one of the people at the meeting saying, well, let's get that book off the shelves for in this <laughs> kindergarten classroom, right? It's all sort of a scale. It's that we're, we're you know, we're... The the problem is when we don't share the values and when someone is banning it for a reason that we don't like, especially if we think it might harm people uh, to not have those books available. And then if they're banning books that are for adults and, and so on, then it's it's a lot easier to say. And let me interject, Jack, that something really important that we get to in this story, in the, in the mini series that we're doing, is that what really is it's so tough but there is some evidence today maybe a lot of evidence that people banning books are seeking to erase entire mm. groups of people yes um in terms of the books that are available about identities and uh, and right. cultures. And so that is something we try to look at very, very carefully. As you said, no one wants a kindergartner reading Fifty Shades of Grey if they can read it. And no one wants um, to see something purely pornographic in any school library. You know, it's something that we need to think about where is this available? How is this available? There are certain kinds of things that need to be handled, but not censored. Okay. Mm. And, and right. that's the, one of the problems now. It used to be that books were being censored individually for content, things that were in them. Um, but now it has moved beyond that to wanting to censor books at all levels that mm. contain information about certain identities. And I think that is is something that we did a good job with. I'm really proud of that. And I also hope that it will, as you said, force people to think beyond either knee-jerk reaction or any knee-jerk reaction, I should really say. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from Beth Ann Patrick about the second season of Missing Pages.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So, Bethann, I'm going to skip over my number three because I wanted to kind of zero in on that one. So let's go to number four. Uh Are writing communities under attack? Yes, this is a really interesting little part of the mini series right now. We decided to investigate the bad art friend scandal. Mm, And (laughs) at first, you know, (laughs) right, we all remember Kidney Gate. And one of the things we weren't sure about when we started looking at this is if we were going to find anyone who wanted to speak about it, Hmm. And if there was more there that we could talk about, you know, rather than just rehashing something that was kind of sad and gossipy and unfortunate, we considered a whole bunch of angles. Mm -hmm. But two things happened almost within 10 minutes on the same morning, which is amazing to me. We not only did I get an email about an essay that had been written about a very similar situation and it was newly published. But then someone contacted me and said, here's who is going to speak on this and here's who was involved, but has publicly online on social media spoken about her role in the entire incident. Hmm. And those two things completely changed the story and gave us the foundation, but also the ability to structure this so that we could say, what does this really mean? Because let's face it, there's one thing, and I don't mind saying this publicly, it's not in the podcast. I think that the whole situation was handled poorly by Grub Street, the Mm. Boston um, organization that this was, you know, that this sort of grew out of. And that is not to say that Grub Street is terrible or anything like that. I am specifically saying the situation wasn't handled as well as it could have been. However, right. I don't want to talk about 
I didn't want to do a story on Grub Street. I didn't want to do a story on writing institutions. I wanted to do a story on what happens when writers actually use other people's stories. It doesn't have to be another writer's story. Hmm. It could also, and we'll see this in one of the interviews here, you'll see that it was a writer borrowing just a, you know, a, a neighborhood friend's story. So it's not about writer versus writer. It's not about when artists are mean girls. It's about what does this mean for the art and for the artist? How does it affect the person who makes this choice? Also, another thing that changed while we were working on the story is that there was a ruling in the case between the two original people, Don Dorland and Sonia Larson. And so, you know, we're able to bring that in and say, this is what the legal system thinks about this. And based on the topic being our writing communities under attack, I'm guessing you're also looking at the two of them and they were in kind of this collective group of right. people who were assisting one another and it really divided them and it kind of became this thing of, well, what are you sharing with others and how are the others using that or or repurposing it or appropriating it? and. But also, Jack, how are the people in the group treating each other? Right, right. Um, and here's, well, again, I don't want to give away too much, yeah. but I will say that that is not something that we're imputing to Grub Street. When I say Grub Street didn't handle this well, I'm talking about after it happened, not what happened during this mm. This mm -hmm. particular group, everyone knows it's called the Chunky Monkeys, the writing group, had some, you know, definitely unkind things to say in their back chat about Don Dorland. And so that came out because of <sighs> legal proceedings. And it will become clearer when people hear that episode. Okay, so that brings us to the topic that I wanted to explore with you in a little more depth yes. today, ghost writers, where oh, yeah. I'm, people have asked me to do episodes on ghost writers, and I, I am fascinated by the concept. And one of the things that fascinated me when uh, I read the description of what you were doing with ghost writers is that mm -hmm. you're looking not just at fiction, but at nonfiction and cookbooks. Yes. So I'm, I'm wondering what exactly is going on with publishing today with ghostwriters? Well, ghostwriters have been in publishing for such a long time. Yeah. And, you know, as I point out, and I, I don't know if we, I can't remember if we talk about this. I think we do in at least one of the intros. Is some of the stuff we read earliest in life was written by ghostwriters, mm. such as the yeah. Nancy Drew right. mysteries, the yep. Hardy Boys, you know, uh, all of those children's series yeah. were written by ghostwriters. And so Carolyn Keene, you know, was a pseudonym that encompassed, I don't know how many different uh, yes. people who wrote those books. So ghostwriting, it's funny. Um, there were different reasons, I think, that uh, publishers wanted ghostwriters. For instance, for those series, of course you want it to feel as if it's one author, mm. you know, taking you all the way through. Why right. wouldn't a publisher, if writers would agree to a contract like that, 
go ahead and say Carolyn Keene is the author so that, you know, generations now of girls yeah. would be crazy about having all the books. It's it's a different feeling than if you see Nancy Drew mysteries, each written by a right. different person. Right. Um, you know, Anna Martin, who wrote the beloved Babysitter's Club series um, and who I've had the the honor and pleasure of interviewing uh, in the past, also has used ghostwriters. Uh, Tom Clancy, as you'll see in the series, uses ghostwriters, mm. but also uses, um, well, I'm not sure about Tom Clancy, but in the case of James Patterson, mm, it's usually yeah. collaborators. Right. And he's very specific about saying that collaboration is different. Um, unfortunately, um, we haven't spoken to him yet. I live in hope. Um, <laughs> yeah, because he's really fascinating. He's turned it, it's almost like a Andy Warhol style factory of uh, fiction. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, people love it. And I just did a live interview in front of, I don't know, 600 people with James Patterson and Mike Lupica, who had just mm. released a book called 12 Months to Live. And they love what they do when they're working on something together. They're on Zoom. They're on the phone. They're in Google. Doc, they're doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, You know, uh, it is truly a collaboration. It is not James Patterson sending a big fat man manuscript to Mike and saying, okay, you can change a couple of names. It is genuinely a collaboration. And that is one of the things I think we wanted to bring across that not only are the two things distinct, but that there is also nothing ghostly about ghostwriting. Okay. Hmm. There's nothing um, shameful about it. There's nothing that is, I mean, now it's very transparent. Look at J.R. Mulringer and Prince Harry. Um, J.R. Mulringer wrote Spare and everyone says, look, look at how amazing this writing is. And everyone's really happy about it. Um, same thing with um, Britney Spears, you know, new memoir and all those kinds of things. Sometimes, for some reasons, publishers don't want to put the ghostwriter's name on the cover or in the acknowledgments. That is a choice that is up to all the people involved in the contract. Yeah. But I don't think readers should ever feel, you know, flummoxed or bamboozled or cheated by knowing <laughs> that these big celebrity biographies or really complicated books are written with more than one person. And a ghostwriter really becomes someone who absorbs the uh, the figure's voice and right. processes. And so a ghostwriter does have a different kind of job than a collaborator does, but it is still a very, um, I think, honorable profession. I don't do ghostwriting. I'm not sure why, because it's probably a lot more lucrative than what I actually do. But <laughs> I just want, so I, I don't have any skin in this game, Jack, is what I'm trying to say. But right, I think right. it's fascinating. So I'll, I'm sorry, I'll let you go on with this. Well, I was going to say, you know, you can see where, I, I mean, one of the things you, when, <laughs> when you talked about the biographies or the autobiographies, you know, I'm reminded of, I think it was Charles Barkley who was 
disavowing things and uh, that had happened to him. And they said, well, that's in your book, Charles. And he said, I haven't read that book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, oh, no, we definitely <laughs> talked about that. And in fact, that brings up something I think really important in here is we do know that there aren't yet enough ghostwriters who are of underrepresented backgrounds. We need more diversity in ghostwriting. Mm. And that is not because I don't think there is necessarily an old boys network, but I, I think it just wasn't something people knew. It wasn't, it just wasn't transparent enough. And now it's changing because now we know that many people are choosing to find ghostwriters who have backgrounds, races, cultures more similar to those for the books they write. So mm. that brings me to, uh, and you might have wanted to ask about this, but uh, the cookbook ghostwriting, yeah, which is right. really fun. So what is what is going on there? Who ghostwrites? Or like, I guess this would be a celebrity cookbook, probably. And it has uh, an actual chef behind it. <laughs> often, often, not necessarily. Um, we talked to one food writer um, who has some great credentials about this. I happen to know some others that I've um, writers I've known for a long time who have worked again on celebrity cookbooks or cookbooks where perhaps there needs to be a, um, some sort of organizing theme and it's very difficult for the publisher or several different cooks or chefs to figure that out. And so I think it's amazing to see someone ghostwriting a cookbook and really getting into uh, the mind of someone who's not a writer. Because cookbooks, we know, I mean, it's not just about, yeah, it's great if the writing is wonderful. The late and much missed Molly O'Neill was a cookbook mm. writer mm -hmm. whose own writing was just superb. Okay. So it's great when you can find that, but we don't need to expect that from people. I think we're moving into an age of much more collaboration overall, Jack. And so if someone is a superb chef and really understands food from the inside out, maybe it's okay that they need some help with putting things into words and sentences on the page. There are some real challenges, though, as J.J. Good, our um, interview, let us know about. And I think it will change the way a lot of us think about the cookbooks we keep on our shelves in our kitchens. I, I hope everyone does. You, can, you can't have a kitchen without a cookbook shelf. One of the things I see on, I uh, see this online is you'll read a, a comment and there will be responses below it. And people will say, you know, this isn't real. This is the PR. This isn't really her talking or this isn't right. really him. You know, this is their PR and it does seem like people, they feel upset when they think they've been tricked or fooled. And in in something like, I don't know that Franklin W. Dixon uh, for the Hardy Boys or Carolyn Keene, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they were, you know, I don't think they ever hired actors to go out and give interviews or book readings as that person or something like that. And in a way, right. you know, it was, you maybe could imagine who Franklin W. Dixon was, but I don't really see a problem with, you know, having that done by a company that was just looking to make a brand or, 
or something like that. I didn't feel real tricked when I learned the truth. I, I kind of thought, wow, it's pretty impressive that they found people who could all kind of write in this style. And it kind of made right? me think about the books and, and, oh, I guess they do have kind of a pattern and there's a way you could imagine learning how to do this. And, and all of that seemed fine to me, but I could see where people would say, well, boy, I've really kind of fallen in love with this singer's personality or this person who is giving me what feels like their homespun wisdom or the encouragement they give to other people or something. And and to think that it's not really the, the actual person who's typing that out does feel a little bit um, you know, like we're in Milli Vanilli territory and we're <laughs> <laughs> and we're listening to people, we're watching people who aren't actually singing the songs that we think we're hearing them sing. Uh, Milli Vanilli, don't tell me you don't remember. Um, <laughs> you know, this is an interesting thing, I think, Jack, in terms of our culture. You know, I started blogging very early. That just shows how old I am. And now I'm seeing us come right back around after we all thought blogs were dead into Substack, which is really just mm. a way of blogging. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I saw early on in blogging was I started reading the Pioneer Woman's blog when I think like the literally the day after she started it, someone showed it to me and I followed along for a long time. Then I did it, you know, eventually sort of part ways with it. It wasn't as useful to me, et cetera, et cetera. So people would be really upset if they thought Reed Drummond wasn't writing her blog posts. Mm. I don't think Reed Drummond is necessarily writing all of her cookbooks. And that is not a slam. Okay. It is. Ray Drummond has a family of four. She's married. Her husband runs a huge cattle ranch in Oklahoma. There's a lot to administer. She has all kinds of, I don't know, workshops, retreats, different kinds of things that, you know, she does. She has or had cookware lines at different department stores. There's no way any one person can do all of that. There's help somewhere. And so here's an interesting thing for this story. We imagine that if Reed Drummond has actually put out um, an enamelware pot or a certain kind of spatula, that naturally she would have had help from some kind of designer, right? Mm, Like, mm -hmm. What does she know about putting together an enamelware pot, except right. likes. But when it comes to the printed word, we have very different feelings. Yes. Okay. We want the printed word to be something that comes straight from the person's mouth. And that is, I think, for very good reasons. And here's what it is. And it has to do with the history of literature. Literature is the art form that connects one person's consciousness to another's most directly. Mm. It feels the most personal. So when we find out that someone is speaking to us in a personal way, but it wasn't actually them, we do feel cheated. I don't think we should. But you know, readers going to think, oh, darn it, it wasn't really this person that I love, admire, and wanted to get into their head. Right. 
Right. That that's the perfect way to explain it because you do think with a a figure like a Martha Stewart or someone like that that what she's doing is giving you the the seal of approval or the that she's exactly. selected it. It's a it's a you know if you're buying her it's a good her thing cookware or something. <laughs> yeah. If if you're buying a blanket or something, you think oh well she. I, I trust what she would put out on the market. I don't think she's actually making this blanket, but I think she's probably reviewing it and checking on the quality and putting her her own, you know, imprint on it in some sense, but maybe designed it or something. But but when it's, you know, something that's written to the customer or to the audience and signed, you know, love Martha. And if you hear that, you know, well, there was some hack who wrote that out in her voice. And, you know, you, you could just, <laughs> exactly. you could say, well, you know, as long as she's putting her stamp of approval on it and has endorsed it and it, it you know, is saying, well, this is a, a message I agree with and everything, it probably shouldn't really be that different from a blanket or dish towel or something. But instead we do feel like, well, people should, if they're going to talk to us, they should really talk to us. They shouldn't have they shouldn't be a puppet moving their mouth while someone else is is putting the words out to us. That's right. That's right. And so uh, that's why I think it's so important that we did these episodes about ghostwriting so that people can listen and understand what really goes on and what it really means and perhaps change their judgment um, that when they find out a book or a series is ghostwritten, that it somehow is less than. It's not. It's both and. Right. Okay. Well, that sounds like a very rich season, and we've only touched on, we haven't even touched on a lot of the things on the list here. The podcast is called Missing Pages, available now in its second season. Beth Ann Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. I am delighted to be back, Jack, and I am really looking forward to listening and continuing to listen to the history of literature, too. Thank you. And finally today, we turn to the world of travel and travel podcasts. As I get older, I care more and more about how I travel, and the Afar website is helpful in this respect. Traveling with some conscientiousness about who you are and how you travel, and what impact you have when you're doing all that. Aislinn Green told me all about her experience traveling and reading and now helping to put together the podcast Travel Tales by Afar. Okay, joining me now is Aislinn Green, the Associate Director of Podcasts at Afar Media, the award-winning travel media brand. She's here today to discuss her work with the narrative podcast Travel Tales by Afar and some work that Afar did to investigate independent bookstores. Aislinn Green, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. It's really wonderful to be here today. So let's start with you and your background. Where did you grow up? <laughs> Well, I actually grew up in a literary city. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, 
And yes, yeah. Land of Gloomy Winter is a great place to read a book, uh, you know, cuddle up with a book and a good cup of coffee, which the city is known for. <laughs> yeah, and a great place to start dreaming of travel to other places as uh, Rick Steves did. Yes, yes. And I've actually <laughs> conversed with Rick Steves. Uh, he was actually a guest on our podcast this, oh, wow. uh, last year. Yeah, yeah. So, And actually, it's really funny because my grandparents were big travelers and they were early Rick Steves adopters, like way before he was kind of cool in the way that he is now. We had all the Rick Steves backpacks and money belts and things like that. So, oh, wow. So very closely tied to him. Yeah. yeah. My big periods of travel first was on a junior year abroad going on a URL pass through uh, Europe nice. and the Let's Go books were everywhere. And yeah. then uh, I did a bunch of traveling. I backpacked for a couple of years in Asia, and Lonely Planet was like the uh, the go to guide. Mm -hmm. But now I am appreciating the work of Afar and the website <laughs> and all of the articles that that's giving me while I'm sitting here stuck in Washington D.C. and uh, thinking about my next trip. So, <laughs> well, we appreciate that. <laughs> How did your interest in travel arise? Yeah, it's it's a fun question to answer, um, and it's one I've been talking about recently because I just did an episode, I did my own travel tale about um, a, a trip that I took through France, and, you know, as I mentioned, you know, my grandparents were big travelers, and so by extension, my family was as well, and when I was about seven years old, my, my aunt had just returned home from kind of a European, the trail the rail journey uh, mm. through Europe and she brought me this poster of the Seine at night in Paris and I was so captivated by that photo it was just the first time that I had really recognized that there were other stories in the world other places to go and it just like mm. absolutely I mean I still have that poster somewhere it was so transformative for me and from there, I, you know, I got into like Nat Geo Traveler. I don't know if you read that magazine, but I love that magazine, you know, mm. all the nineteens, and then it, you know, eventually shuttered. Um, but that it just kind of sparked this lifelong interest in travel that really I can connect the dots between that poster and, and where I am right now. <laughs> yeah, right. So what type of travel do you like to do? And I don't know if that question is, is too vague or if you get what yeah. I'm where I'm going with that. <laughs> no, I do. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I Well, I kind of consider myself like an omnivorous traveler. I feel like it's like the role of a travel editor is that you have to want to try, taste, and do everything, right? Mm, like you have mm -hmm. to. But I would say that there was a very specific through line for my travels. I really love active. I like to move. I really love to walk. So I love big cities that you can just wander through. You know, you walk 11 yeah. miles in a day and and I also like to ride a bike. So anything that combines those two is one of my favorite things to do. And actually, a few years ago, I did a cycling river cruise with back roads. And I had never thought I would be a cruise person. You know, and I feel like a lot of travelers are like, oh, I would never do a cruise. But what was so cool about this is that I was able to go. So you everything stays on, on the ship during the day and then you go off and you cycle in these phenomenal places that get you beyond the little port cities which i think uh, are what a lot of people don't want to you know they feel like they're too touristy and so i have these wonderful memories of like cycling past these really aromatic fields in the sun and then one day we actually even crossed the border from austria into slovakia and so it was just the best possible way to see a place and then of course you're you're very hungry and 
you can yeah. eat everything, um, which is another one of my passions while traveling. So I would say those two things are kind of really key. Like I just want to be able to connect with a destination and with people through kind of physical activity, you know, at a, at a human rate. I don't necessarily want to be in a car if I can avoid it. And then, of course, I do love a good bookstore. So I will very rarely leave a city without checking out at least one of their bookstores. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Uh, so you have restaurants, which it's, it's kind of nice. Everyone has to eat. So you might as well enjoy the place where you're, where you're staying. And then bookstores. And that is something that it's changed for me a bit. Uh, yeah, it it used to be, well, it used to be mandatory. I mean, that, you know, when I started traveling, it was pre Amazon and pre, uh, you know, the rise of the big chains. And so it it was just, you had to go to a bookstore in any (laughs) new city you were in, uh, just to make sure that there wasn't something on the shelf that you didn't have access to. Uh, (laughs) in in the store in your, in your hometown. But I think that's changed a little bit now that we all have access to every book all the time at our fingertips. It doesn't have the same, um, it's not so mandatory because I'm worried there might be books I'm missing out on, but it, it, but it definitely still has a pull for me as a way of experiencing the location. Uh, you yes. know, that it, it it gives you a flavor of what things are like and you get to be around the people who are there and you get to see the staff and you get to kind of just absorb the feel of it. But, uh, you know, that it becomes a slightly different experience for me these days when I look up a bookstore and, and I tend to gravitate then toward independent or used bookstores because they'll have a little more character than a chain, yeah, which yeah. might be a chain that I have access to in my home city. Yes. Yeah, that's, that is a good point. And it's so funny because I don't think I ever really thought about what drew me to a bookstore in the kind of pre-Amazon era. But mm. I, I think it's always been about what it says about the city or about the character mm. of the place, because there were many yeah. times where I would go to a bookstore and I wouldn't necessarily even buy anything because, you know, especially when you're younger and you're traveling late, like, Adding right. three bags to your backpack <laughs> doesn't really make a lot of sense, even though it would be so hard to resist that. Although I did bring, I bought a bunch of books back when I lived in France, but that was a different story. But I, yeah, I think it's always been about that sense, like you're saying, like it feels like a portal to a city in some ways. And usually, you know, bookstore staff, like they're, they're always characters, right? Especially mm. in like independent or yeah. used bookstores. I feel like they all have kind of quirky lives beyond the books and they're obviously all very passionate about what they do and they usually have some very kind of obscure interest so like you want like i want western sci-fi romance they can tell you you know the whole genre <laughs> of their favorites of that. right <laughs> yeah, that, that's, it does feel yeah. like bookstores and libraries are are a community at its best you know, they're kind yeah, of, yeah. Uh, they're, it's where yeah. they're putting their best foot forward in some ways. And they often are, I think, the most kind of uh, inclusive spaces in a mm. city, I mm-hmm. find. You know, even if you're in a place that's not particularly inclusive, I feel like people gravitate toward, who gravitate toward the bookstores tend to be a little bit more like, be who you are and, you know, LGBTQ friendly and things like that. Yeah. And I really love um 
Yeah, I was actually in Savannah, Georgia for the first time last December, and I went to E. Shaver. Have you ever been to that bookstore there? No. Oh, it's it's wonderful. It's it's one of those that I feel like if you like a bookstore as kind of like a soul of the place, it's a fan. It's been voted best bookstore in the South, I think, a few times. But mm. um, it's you know huge and sprawling and has kind of well, actually it's not that big, but it does feel like some place that you can get lost in. Mm. And we have you know a bookstore, cat, and the history is really interesting because the space was built in. The eight, around the 1840s by this woman named Eliza Dewitt, and she was one of the first female builders in the city then. Um, and they usually have some kind of local art project. Like when we were there, there was a typewriter where you could, you know, type out a, a poem or a little note to someone. And you can, if you buy a book that's been banned by a school district, they'll give you an I read banned book sticker. So, mm. you know, it's a little sass, a little bookstore sass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a recent favorite. <laughs> I love that about those independent bookstores, too, that the the buildings often have so much character that it's, right. you know, they found a, a really great old space to put it in or yeah. the way they've furnished it or something. It, it's almost like when you go into a museum. I used to take my my kids into museums even before they were really old enough to appreciate the exhibits or anything, just so they'd experience the space and the light yeah. and the different, uh, just the settings were so cool. Uh, and, and just seemed so powerful to be in a, a different space like that rather than the, the typical spaces that we were wandering around in. Absolutely. There's something kind of cathedral like about, yeah. you know, a, a museum and a good bookstore too. Right. Um, or maze like but have you ever seen that i think it's an amazon show called i want to say the librarians and the it librarians. has no i don't think so I think, no it's a, it's kind of a cheesy show but it's um it's basically about these people who guard this really vast and mystical library and it kind of shape shifts and i've always you know i feel like bookstores can feel like that you know where they kind of you get lost in them and they can change in some ways. And uh, there's a, there's a bit of magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot like travel. Yeah. It's like travel, yeah, traveling exactly. within travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah, you yeah, visited, exactly. uh, I was reading on the website, you visited one here in Washington, DC and chose uh, second story books and tell us why that one made the list. Yeah, you know, I was actually in D.C. for Travel Tales. We were doing, um, at that time, we were doing uh, Travel Tales as a live event series. And I only had a day or two to explore, but I think I went to three bookstores while I was there. There was Politics and Prose, mm. Kramer's, that's, that's the name of another one. Yep. And then Second Story Books. And I was just fascinated by the fact that it was one or it is one of the largest used and rare bookstores in the in the country mm -hmm. and the fact that the guy who runs it and i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly but alan stipek that mm -hmm. he not only repairs books but also loans books for movie sets and helps places like the smithsonian build their collections that's just you have to go to a place that's run by someone with that kind of yeah, that um, is deep, deep knowledge. That's <laughs> deep knowledge. Yeah, but I just, you know, I do love a secondhand bookstore because, you know, and I remember walking up and seeing those carts outside and thinking, uh-oh, because those are always the ones, kind of those discount carts that can kind of sink me um, in terms of bringing books <laughs> home because I just feel like secondhand bookstores inspire more risk-taking in your reading, uh, right? Like, yeah. 
you know, other bookstores, like new books can be pricey and you're making a commitment and you don't necessarily know if you'll like the book, especially if it's only in hardcover. And so a secondhand book, though, you know, if it's half price or it's a dollar, shoot, why not buy it? You know, if I don't like it, I'll donate it to a little, you know, a tiny library or something. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And I just think it's, you know, I love from an environmental perspective, books that go from one person to the next and contain contain stories of their own in that way from, yeah. from previous owners. <laughs> yeah, I knew a, an author once who picked up one of his own books in a, a used no, bookstore. Really? And, and it was a book of short stories. And the, whoever the previous owner was had given a letter grade on the table of contents. He had oh. given a letter grade to each of the stories. <laughs> oh my gosh. Were they so I was like, no, no, they they were, there was like, you know, it was, he was kind of a harsh grader. So it was like a, oh. you know, C minus. <laughs> and... <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, readers so, can be he, uh, he definitely <laughs> bought that book. That was, uh, he, he was but, a good sport about it. <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a keeper for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you mentioned Travel Tales, and I mentioned it at the beginning. Tell us about Travel Tales by Afar. When did the podcast begin, and, and what's its purpose? What does it cover? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned, it started as a live event series. We wanted to do, you know, the magazine itself. So Afar started as, as a magazine, and we've always been known for our long-form storytelling there. It's a little bit different than the typical travel narrative. And so we wanted to take some of those stories on the road and basically kind of recast them for for the year and do these kind of salon-style storytelling events in cities across the country. So we did a couple of years of that, which was really fun. Um, I loved I loved bringing them to life. We used other kind of multimedia and things like that. Had would have food or music and photos. And then in late 2019, we decided we wanted to expand our reach, and we just made a very good decision at the right time because, of course, we had that great big thing called the pandemic mm, that yeah. hit in early 2020 and would have shut down any live events we were doing. But because we had this podcast all ready to go. We were able to kind of roll that out. And because people were housebound and couldn't travel, we just saw a really phenomenal interest in it because I think people were able to kind of still travel through our our stories. And we like to say that, you know, they're all first person narratives about trips that have changed us in some way. Travel can make a big difference in our lives, especially if we let it or we have big adventures. And so we are just always looking for people with an interesting story to tell. I kind of think of them as like travel bedtime stories, and they cover all parts of the world, all different types of travel. Some are wonderfully optimistic and fun. Others are a little bit heavier and, you know, grappling with more intense subjects. But yeah, that kind of like first person narrative of trips that have changed us in some way or is that the through lane. Now, I wasn't familiar with Afar or the website Afar.com, but I am now a fan. And the motto (laughs) on the Afar website is inspiring, empowering, and enriching travelers who care. And I wanted to ask you if you could draw a distinction between just a traveler and a traveler who cares. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important distinction to make at this moment in time. And you know, that has always been a core part of our mission is kind of thinking about the impact that we have on people and place as we move around the globe, like it's a privilege to travel. And so that's, that's always been a core part of our identity. But coming out of the pandemic, 
we felt like we really needed to kind of double down on that and make it very clear that from both an environmental and kind of a social perspective, we all need to be thinking more deeply about how, why, and where we travel. Mm-hmm. You know, issues of over-tourism are rampant, and a lot of that has come out of the kind of social media, Instagram environment where people see something, of course. And, you know, everyone is guilty of this, myself included. You see some place and you, you say, I want to go there and I want to ex- I want to experience whatever that is. But, you know, that has an often damaging impact on cities, especially in places, especially if they don't have the infrastructure to support it. And there's just issues with climate change and that side of travel. And so we've talked a lot about this idea of being more thoughtful with how and when we travel. And that's something that I really tried to kind of embody myself. It's like, why do I need to take this trip? Can I go for longer? Can I go to fewer places for a longer period of time? Can I go beyond the places that um, everyone thinks that we should go see? But it's, yeah, this kind of just general view of kind of, looking at the world and the privilege of travel and the impact that we have. Right. And does Travel Tales, would you say, takes the same point of view as the website and and not just about travelers who care, but about the inspiring, empowering, and enriching? I'm guessing that would serve as a good mission statement for the podcast as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say especially the inspirational point and we have another podcast called Untapped, and I think that's more about kind of how to travel better or smarter. It's more Intel focused, but Travel Tales is about, you know, sparking that that longing to step out your front door and, and have an adventure. And I think enriching that just naturally travel enriches our lives. It's the best form of education I can imagine. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely the same. And you mentioned Rick Steves. Uh, who are some of the other guests you've had on the show? Oh, yeah, we've had so many fun guests. I mean, one of the things that we like to do is kind of, we, of course, work with some travel writers, but we've always wanted to work with, you know, writers or artists or people who are not necessarily directly involved with the travel space because they often have a really interesting perspective on travel, right? That they're not kind of like following the traditional travel norms. Yeah. Um, so we look for people, you know, notable people from various fields who have had an experience that has marked them in some ways. And I personally love working with comedians. We've worked with a, a handful. One uh, was Michelle Buteau, comedian Michelle Buteau. She told a travel tale about getting stood up in Paris as a young as a young person with her friend. Mm. Um, you know, the, the larger message was kind of the importance of choosing friendship over something like an international booty call. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that was that was a that was a great episode. We've worked with people like Amy Vitali. She's a wildlife photographer who's really passionate about conservation, and <sighs> she went to Kenya and actually documented this kind of risky giraffe rescue. They had to move the giraffes from this particular type of giraffe from an island kind of onto a, you know, a main conservation area in Kenya. And so she told the story of what that was like and how they, you know, made sure that the animals were safe and not being overly handled by humans. And we had some really great photos of that one too. Maggie Shipstead, you know, the author of Great Circle, she told a travel tale about she went to the Arctic as part of kind of a, a fellowship. They were bringing artists there to, you know, travel around on this ship and engage with the Arctic in different ways. And at that time, she had this kind of 
amorphous idea for the novel, but she hadn't written a single word. She had a bit of, I don't want to say writer's block, but she wasn't progressing. And that trip actually kind of unlocked that book for her, which, so I think that's, that's a really fun story just because that, that book is so good and got a, a lot of press that year. Frances Lamb, the host of Splendid Table, told a story about traveling to Malaysia with a chef friend of his who had kind of had this ruptured bond with her family and her food was trying to repair some of that. So yeah, really wide spectrum of, of people, personalities. Mm. And I understand you're in the middle of the fourth season. What do we have in store for us coming up? Yeah, uh, we have some really fun things this season. One thing that we've added is that at the top of each episode, we have a little Q&A with each guest. So I'm kind of asking them, you know, about areas of their trip that they didn't necessarily, uh, they weren't able to cover in their story or just, you know, the larger questions about travel. One great example is one of our contributing writers, Ryan Knighton. He's a TV writer who writes for the show Billions, and he also happens to be blind. And he has traveled very extensively for us throughout the years and done incredible things. Like he went on his own. We used to have this series called Spin the Globe, where we would literally spin the globe and send someone within 24 hours to report a story. And we sent him alone to Cairo (laughs) with no notice. So he's a very adventurous guy. And his most recent story was about, he's also a surfer. Uh, He's been surfing for about 10 years, but only in one particular stretch of ocean near his home in British Columbia. And he wanted to go to Kauai to learn to surf. But for him, it's all about the guide. Like he he equates place with guide because it's so much they can make or break an experience with him. So his episode kind of starts with a conversation about, you know, why he continues to do these adventurous things, even when they terrify him. Mm. And then we hear his story about, you know, learning to surf a new break in, in Hawaii and how that might feel really accessible for a lot of people, but for him, that's kind of a really big mountain to climb. So, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My last question, and it's <laughs> sort of a two-parter. I want to tie this back in with literature. I think travel and literature are so connected that I'm, I'm, I sort of can't think of one without the other, but I was wondering if you could recommend any books uh, for our listeners. And the, what I was thinking of is, a book about travel for people who are at mm-hmm. home and also a good book that people who are on the road might like to read. Yes. I had so much fun thinking about this, I have to say. Um, so here, here's my book recommendation that I think is guaranteed to spark adventure. Yeah. <laughs> it's Dervla Murphy's Full Tilt. Full Tilt. Okay. And for people who aren't familiar with Dervla, she was an Irish cyclist and author. She actually just passed away in 2022, I think at the age of 90. And that's when I first read Full Tilt as kind of a a tribute. But she was this revolutionary character. You know, back in the 60s, she set out with her bike, which she named Roz, and cycled from her home in Ireland to India, passing through Europe, Mm. Iran, Afghanistan, and more. And she just had these phenomenal adventures. I mean, I don't think I could ever have been as brave as she was. And people thought that she was crazy to to embark on this trip as a woman on a bicycle at that time. But, you know, the reason that I recommend it and that I think it still holds up today is that she had this really incredible outlook. She was just very curious and lacking in judgment. And I think she just kind of embodies how we as travelers 
should behave when we leave our front door. You know, this idea of just mm. going to a place and experiencing their customs and saying, okay, that's how they live here. That's, you know, it may be different than how I live at home. Afghanistan was actually one of her favorite places on the trip. And I think she had this way of describing the place that made me want to travel there so much. But just that keen observational mind and ability to really meet people where they are. She wanted to, she wants to, or she wanted to embed in local communities and really absorb the place. So I think that that is guaranteed to kind of want to get you going somewhere, even if you don't do anything as ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> that's what she did. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good one. So what, how about for people who are headed out, what book should they tuck into their bag? Yes. I think I would go with Alan de Baton's The Art of Travel. Oh, uh-huh. It's a wonderful, it's a, a collection of short stories or a short essays, and I think it's a wonderful meditation on travel. And while you're traveling, it's a fun one because it's, I think it's so identifiable. It's, you know, it's funny, it's frank, it's insightful. There's, and there's one essay in there called On Anticipation about the difference between what we hope for in our travels and then what actually transpires. Uh-huh. And every time I read it, I just laugh. I have that laugh of recognition where you're like, yes, yes, you said (laughs) something true about the human condition. And then he has another essay about the power of liminal spaces and, you know, why we're we're drawn towards them. And I personally love being in an airport or on a train. I like that kind of in-between space and time. And he kind of draws out some of the interest there. So I think that's a fun one to read while you're actually on the road. Okay, so we've got Full Tilt, and it was called The Art of Travel? Yes, Okay, The Art of Travel. Aislinn Green, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. You're welcome. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Two new podcasts for your consideration, along with this humble little podcast, of course. My thanks to Beth Ann Patrick and Aislinn Green for helping me to kick off the new year. And my thanks to all of you. I hope you made it through your holiday season and are looking forward to 2024. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>